Let's look together now at this prayer of Moses. Psalm 90 is titled, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. It begins in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80 Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes. Establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Will you bow with me as we pray once again? Holy Father, we have read from your perfect and precious word. God, as we seek now to glean from your word what you might have us to learn to grow and mature in ways that you might have us to stretch and expand our faith. Holy Spirit, would you move? Father, your messenger is imperfect, but your message is perfect. So, Lord, would you speak your message and proclaim the good news of the gospel, the glory of you, our great God, to our hearts this morning. That those of us who need to be encouraged might be encouraged. That those of us who need to be challenged, that we might be challenged, that those of us who need to be convicted, that, Lord, we would feel conviction over our sin. And for those of us who need the comfort of you, the Lord God Almighty, that you might comfort us with your great power and compassionate spirit. Father in heaven, we know that all of this is possible through the reading, the teaching, and the proclamation of your perfect word. So would you come now, Lord, and add your blessing as we seek to hear from you, as your word is preached. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 
We come to Psalm 90, and it's titled, as I said, A Prayer of Moses. Moses is described as the man of God. And so we're not really sure when this prayer was prayed. We're not really sure when Moses penned this prayer. But what we do know is a lot about the history of Israel. And more than likely, based on the context of the prayer, this is a prayer that Moses is praying when they are right up against the Jordan. Maybe sometime around Deuteronomy, when they've given the law, they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. There was an entire generation that had to die off before they could enter into the promised land. Now, I know this is very meticulous, and I know this is very tedious, but Numbers tells us that when the Israelites rebelled against God and God said, none of this generation will be entering into my promised land, there are probably about 620,000 Israelites. So that means that those were the men of fighting age. Those were the number of people, probably closer to a million. But if we take just the 620,000 over a 40-year period, that means that there were at least nine funerals a day among the Israelites for 40 years. Can you see where some of the angst of this prayer comes from? If you are familiar with the story of the Israelites, they were released from bondage in Egypt after 400 years of longing. God raises up Moses, God sends Moses to them, and then they are broken free from the bondage of the Egyptians. But over and over again, they turn to false gods. Over and over again, they rebel against the Lord. Now, before we get too cocky, before we get too arrogant, those stories are not in there so that we can read them and think, oh, look how great we are. Those stories are in there so we can see ourselves in those stories. We are the epitome of the Israelites today in a modern context. God pours out his grace and his mercy upon us, and all we do is rebel and turn and worry and fear. All we do is look for something else to fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts so we are just like the Israelites in so many ways. Well, they get to the edge of the Jordan River. And it is time to go into the promised land. So Moses scouts out what the land looks like and sends 12 spies into the land. And if you remember, they come back and 10 of those spies says, it's impossible. There's no way. There's no chance we survive if we go in there. Everything about this place is huge. The fruit, the produce, everything is great and wonderful. But the people are just as big. They'll squash us like bugs. Now, these are the same people who God just turned off the lights in Egypt and left the land of Goshen lit up. Now, I know that's not a big deal to you and me because we have light switches, but they never had immediate access to light and darkness like that. And in the midst of the plagues, God takes the son of the sun god. If there was anything that Pharaoh should have had control over, if he really was a god, it should have been the sun. And the Lord just turned off the lights. There was darkness over the face of Egypt. There was only one place in all of Egypt where there was no darkness. And you know where that was? In the land of Goshen, where all the Israelites were. So they looked around, and when they went to town to buy some things from the Egyptians, guess what? It was dark, pitch black dark. Everybody had to carry candles around, or they could not see. These are the same people that they painted blood over their doorposts. And the death angel came by and passed over them because the the blood was on the doorpost. But every firstborn in all of Egypt was 
killed, was put to death if you didn't have the blood on the doorpost. And yet they say these people are too big. They're too strong. There's too many fortresses. There's no way that God could do this. And that's the reason why God says none of this generation, Moses, will go. There's two people that are against those ten, right? Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua are the only ones of that generation that get to enter into the promised land. Because they were the ones that came back and said, yeah, they're big. Yeah, they're strong. Yeah, it's going to be hard. But let me tell you what, our God is awesome. And do you know why Caleb and Joshua talk like that? They talk like that because Moses talks like this in Psalm 90. There's a lot of angst. There's a lot of heartache, especially starting in verse 7. But for the first six verses, did you notice how Moses talks about God? He talks about a, a God that is so far beyond what we could ever comprehend. See, one of my favorite books is a book by J.D. Greer, and it's called Not God Enough. And what you and I fall into the trap of is the same trap that these Israelites fell into. We think that God is like a version of you and me that's a little bit smarter, a little bit more powerful, a little bit cooler, a little bit more heavenly, a little bit more glorious. But basically, he's like you and me and just a little bit above you and me. Folks, that is so far from who God is. It's as different as night and day. We serve a God that is bigger than big. A God that is beyond words that we have to describe him. And this is how Moses talks of God. That's why Joshua and Caleb came back and said, yeah, it's a big deal, but let me tell you something. There ain't nothing that God can't handle. Because Moses taught them, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. That language is intentional. It's supposed to remind us in Hebrew of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. So the tabernacle is built and God's presence inhabits the tabernacle in a special way. And all the Israelites would have seen that. But Moses flips the script. He says, God, the tabernacle is not your dwelling place. You have been our dwelling place. You, O Lord, whether we've been in Egypt, whether we've been in the Palestinian area, whether we've been in Jerusalem, whether we've been in the land of Canaan, whether we've been in Ur of the Chaldeans, where he called Abraham from, no matter where we've been, you, God, have been our dwelling place. You know, in the ancient times, they thought that gods were territorial. Not only were they polytheistic, but they thought that each god had his own territory. That's why when they left Egypt, they said, well, God did some great things in Egypt. But now that we've gone out of Egypt, there must be another God that governs this place. So they talked to Moses' brother, Aaron. And they said, Aaron, make for us a God that we might worship him. We have to understand that people thought gods were territorial. When Moses speaks to God and says, you are our dwelling place, he means that wherever they go, there's nowhere they can go to get away from the presence of God. That's why he even follows up with, down a few verses later in verse 8, he talks about the iniquities that we have are set before him. He says, even our secret sins are before you. Even Moses had an understanding thousands of years ago that there's nowhere we can go to get away from God. There's no dark corner we can hide in to hide our sin from the Lord. God is everywhere, all at once. He and he alone 
is our dwelling place. The main two verses I really want us to focus on when we think about God in this way are verse 1 and verse 14. There's a lot of history, there's a lot of background to this passage. We've talked about a lot of that. Moses is going to keep talking about how big and how awesome God is. But I want for our hearts and our minds to focus on two verses that leave us with two questions. Before we go any further, I just want to ask, is God your dwelling place? Is God my dwelling place? Moses can pray earnestly and honestly to the Lord. You have been our dwelling place. It speaks to the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere all at once. But it also speaks to the fact that Moses looks to God for the feeling of home. When, when you approach the Lord, do you approach the Lord and see God as your home? I know many of us have been on trips. Many of us have been far away. It's summertime. There's people traveling right now. Is there anything like making it home? Am I right? Now, look, I'm a little bit of an introvert when it comes to traveling, okay? I'm not much of a beach guy. I don't like the mountains a whole lot. If you ask me, Nathan, where do you want to go on vacation? I want to sit in my chair in my nice air-conditioned home where I am comfortable and be at home. Home is like my favorite place. So maybe it's not quite as pronounced for you, but when I get home after a week-long vacation, usually... We kind of get thrown in the corner. You know, I'm the youngest in my family. So anytime we went on vacation, I was the one riding in the dashboard up front in the, or the, in the back window or down in the floor or wherever. And they would get enough beds for everybody. And then, you know, there'd be a pullout couch or Nathan would just be on an air mattress in the floor. So when we got home, I got my bed back. I was comfortable. It was just something about you step in the door of your house and just, ah, I am home. Does God feel that way for us? My house feels that way for me. When I'm home and my family's there with me, I know I'm comfortable, I'm safe, I'm home. There's relief, there's satisfaction, there's joy, there's contentment because I'm home. Is God our home? Or do we feel that way with something else? Have we minimized God in our life And we've seen God as like the Israelites see him. Just one among many gods. He's probably powerful. He's probably important. He's probably very knowledgeable. But he's not everywhere all at once. He's not in every facet of my life. He's just an aspect of my life. But I really feel at home when I fill in the blank. Maybe for you that feeling of home is at work. You get home and you feel stressed out. You get home and all the kids are calling you, all the grandkids are calling you. you got all sorts of stresses. You're worried about what's going on at work. You can't even go on vacation because you're worried about all the things outside of home. So when you're home, it's more stressful than when you have your true home. You can buy a new house, right? But how long does it take before that new house feels like home? Is God your home? Have you let God be big enough To be the place where you find the most safety, the most security. When you are at rest more than anywhere else in any other time in your life. The second question I want to ask, and we'll continue through this, is in verse 14. The prayer that Moses prays is that in the morning, that we would be satisfied with the steadfast love of God. 
He talks about how big God is. He talks about how awesome God is. But Moses knows, as the Israelites have been wandering for 40 years, even as there's been a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud to lead them, lead them, even as there has been God's presence descending on the tabernacle to dwell in the midst of the camp with them, he knows that the Israelites have not been satisfied in God. This is the same kind of concept as God being our dwelling place. It's that same sense of satisfaction that when we arise in the morning is the steadfast love of God that woke us up this morning enough to make us satisfied in that day? Or is there something else that we have to have in order to feel satisfaction? You know, I've talked to a lot of people, and there are a lot of folks that come and sit down in my office, and what is really happening in their lives, the reason that they are so dissatisfied in life is because they've never found satisfaction in God. If you find your satisfaction in the work that you do, well, one day you're not going to be able to work. Even if you're a Major League Baseball player, you know, there are people that make it all the way to the Major Leagues. There's people from Andalusia who've made it all the way to the Major Leagues. But no matter how good you are at something, there will come a day where you will not be able to do it anymore. Or you won't be able to do it like you used to. And so, if your satisfaction is in your ability to perform or your ability to do whatever it is that you do, and that's what satisfies you, it will let you down. If your satisfaction comes from your wife, if it comes from your children, if it comes from your job, if it comes from your house, if it comes from your car, if it comes from your things, one day they will leave you dissatisfied. Have you ever met those people? That they're working so hard and they're spinning their wheels. And you can tell, no matter where they are, no matter what they do, they're not satisfied. And they try and fill their life, even people who do good things. You know, there's people that are involved in foster care ministry. And they get involved in foster care ministry because they need to do something to feel satisfied. They need to do something to feel like they're contributing. And, And they're doing a great work. But all along, they got into it because... They were dissatisfied with their lot in life. They were dissatisfied with the things that they were doing. And if we don't do ministry from a place of I am so satisfied in God that he is going to do whatever that ministry is through me, then that ministry is going to burn you out and not build you up. You're going to pour your life out for the church, for the children, or for the school, or for your job, or for your community. And at the end of the day, you're going to get old and you're going to step away and people are going to go, who are you again? What what did you do around here? My name's on that building. I I made sure that this existed. I put all my work and my money. They put my name on the building. Uh, Oh, okay. Yeah, that's great. We're probably going to tear that building down next month. You know that, right? There's nothing in life that isn't transient other than God. But if you and I look at God like he's just somebody a little bit bigger than us, a little bit smarter than us, then we're going to forget that God is all and in all. God is everything. And if God is not the motivation and the motivation doesn't come from a contentment and a satisfaction in God, then you can do good things, you can do bad things. You can do drugs and drink alcohol, and guess what? They will leave you dissatisfied. I had a professor in seminary. And he always 
blew our socks off because of the appalling way that he spoke and talked. And I want you to know this man was a missionary in Thailand for like 15 years. Then he came back and he pastored a church for 15 some odd years. Then he became a professor. This is a man who has sold out, die hard for Jesus. But before he went to Thailand to be a missionary, he was addicted to crack cocaine. And he would tell us that almost every single class. Let me tell you something. Sitting in a class with a seminary professor that used to do cocaine is a really odd experience on the face of it. And he said that when he got saved, he was radically saved. But his dad came to him months later. And he said, Dad, aren't you proud of me that now I'm, I'm living for Jesus? And he said, well, yes, son, I am. But you're still an addict. He said, what? What are you talking about? I haven't done drugs in months. I'm never going to touch this stuff again in my life. And he hasn't. He's one of the few people that he broke free and his life has forever been changed by the grace of God. It's incredible. But his dad looked at him and said, son, you're an addict. You just replaced what you were addicted to. You were addicted to drugs and they were destroying your life. But now you're addicted to Christ. And guess what? You're devoted to Christ just as much and more so than you ever were devoted to cocaine. But ask, ask him this. Was it worth it? He looked at his dad and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm addicted to Christ. You're right. I'm still an addict. I just replaced what I was addicted to. But now I'm addicted to the greatest being that has ever been. I'm addicted to a God that is big enough to satisfy the deepest needs of my soul. I'm addicted to something that actually brings me contentment. He said, Dad, I was addicted to cocaine. And every time I came off that high, I was looking for the next one. And he said, I don't feel that way following Christ. I am satisfied in Jesus. And I, I wonder, are you and I satisfied in Jesus or are we satisfied in how doing good things makes us feel? Do we do a good thing at church so that people talk good about us? Do we do a good thing so that we can be satisfied in other people's opinion of us? Or are we satisfied in God so we follow him and do good things. Because if we have that backwards, you'll spend your whole life following Jesus, feeling dissatisfied. You'll spend your whole life finding a dwelling place everywhere but in Christ. If your marriage is what brings you your satisfaction, your marriage can let you down. If your children bring you your satisfaction, guess what? They can turn into prodigals overnight. They can disappoint you. They can let you down. They can cut you and hurt you and sting you worse than anything else because you let them all the way in and you set these expectations for them and then they don't live up to them and now all of a sudden you're left with this empty feeling of dissatisfaction. You know the only place that you can find true satisfaction that will never let you down is in God. John Piper says it this way, God is most glorified in our lives when we're most satisfied in him. And, and so this morning, that, that's really all there is. I, I could give you a lot more history, a lot more literary background to Psalm 90. I did a lot of studying and I could do that. But we kind of shifted gears because these are the two verses that I wanted to bring it home to. These are the two verses that God laid on my heart. Is God our home? Is he our dwelling place? Is he our source of satisfaction? I want you to know this psalm has captivated me so much that during the school year, we have one of those little Alexa devices. They are awful. Don't get one. But 
we set our alarm by one, and we tell it to set our alarm to play Psalm 90 by Shane and Shane. And so my wife and I wake up every morning. I'm, I'm going to be honest. During the school year, during the summer, she doesn't let me set an alarm. I'm just I'm going to throw that out there. School teachers that don't have to get up don't like to get up. Don't set an alarm, husbands. If your wife is a school teacher and she doesn't have to get up, that's not a good move. That's, you're you're going to start the day off on a real bad foot, I promise. But during the school year, play Psalm 90. It says, when the sun comes up, satisfy us with your love. Is that your prayer every morning? Just the fact that God gave you another day convicts me every morning that I wake up. And I think, Lord, no matter what happens for the rest of this day, may I be satisfied in you now and when I lay my head back down on this pillow tonight. Is God your home? Are you satisfied in him? Because he desires to be that for us. He has wrath that he could pour out on us. It's all over this psalm. Have pity and your wrath according to the fear of you who considers you. There's wrath all through this. By your wrath we are dismayed. You know what he did? He wants us to be satisfied in him so much that he took all that wrath and he poured it on Jesus. So that you and I would have the opportunity to be satisfied in him. He took all the wrath that you deserve and all the wrath that I deserve and poured it on Jesus. So why wouldn't we find our ultimate satisfaction in Him? Are you still sitting under the wrath that sin has brought to your life? Or have you escaped to Jesus and found home and found satisfaction? Where do you stand this morning? Will you make God your home? Will you be satisfied in Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true and your word is perfect. We love you, Father. We do deserve your wrath. We deserve for your wrath to be poured out on us, to be separated from your goodness for all eternity. But Lord, in your mercy and in your kindness, that steadfast love, You sent your one and only Son, and Jesus, you came and you died on a cross. You took the punishment and the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death, but your free gift is life, eternal and everlasting. Through your perfect life, through your death and your resurrection. Lord, it is so easy for us to let that overwhelming good news become To seek satisfaction in other things. To make other things in our lives our home. Lord, help us this morning. So that we could honestly say, as Moses said, that you are our dwelling place. Both now and in all generations. Lord, we pray that you would satisfy us with your love. God, we are desperate for you and your spirit in our lives. Would you help us to be committed and devoted to you? And God in heaven, if there is anyone here who has not committed their life to you and found home in you, Lord Jesus, in your forgiveness and in your grace, would you move upon their heart that this very morning they might trust in you and follow you? 
that their lives might be changed forever. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.